All right, welcome to the first event in the Live Theory Applications for Writing and Rhetoric podcast. My name is Meredith Cruz. I'm in the writing program at the University of Southern California, and I'm co-chair of the Professional Development Committee along with uh, Ryan Leak. And we have with us as a guest today, Abraham Weil from Cal State Long Beach, who's our speaker, and we'll introduce him more in depth in a moment. But I just wanna say a little bit about this series of which this is the first episode, we're hoping to think of live theory as a couple connotations, right? That theory has both vitality and some mattering, which we'll get into later what that means, right? In terms of significance to what we do in the writing program. And we wanna keep that idea of theory really open. It doesn't necessarily have to be centered in writing and rhetoric per se, but then this podcast and series in particular will try to think about the applications of theory for both the teaching of writing, which we do in our program, and more rhetorical scholarship. And the second, let me just do a quick pitch, the second speaker and event will be on October 30th with Boris Nunley, who's a professor of rhetoric at UC Riverside, and he'll be talking about uh, African-American Hush Harbor rhetoric. I think the other important thing I'll just say, we're actually reading people's work. (laughs) Yeah, so people have come to this uh, event engaging Abraham Weil's piece on transversal animacies and the mattering of Black trans political life. Yeah, let me give a quick intro for him, actually. Okay, and then I'll turn it over to Ryan. So Abraham Weil, who's with us today, is an assistant professor, as I mentioned, at Cal State Long Beach. He's also the general co-editor of TSQ, which is Transgender Studies Quarterly, and his areas of focus are Black Studies, Trans Theory, Continental Philosophy, Deleuze and Guattari, uh, Affect Studies, Sexuality Studies, and Feminist Theory. And he is writing a book called Transmolecular Revolution, Transversality and the Mattering of Political Life, um, which focuses on radical political formation, anti-Black racism, trans theorizing, and continental philosophy in the US and France from the 1960s to the present. I'm trying to remember when I first met you. (laughs) I think I reached out after reading the trans psychoanalytics edition of TSQ, where he had a piece at the end of that. Um, and then we've, we, we proposed a panel together for the National Women's Studies Association before it got canceled due to COVID. But um, just on a personal level, I really enjoy reading your work. Thank you for your contributions and um, especially to psychoanalytics, trans psychoanalytics, right? Okay, so that's our speaker. And then just a quick for the format, we really wanna hear from people. You know, we have a small group and that's great. And then this will be recorded. People can hear the recording later, but um, you know, I'll let Abraham do a kind of, you know, quick kind of introductory remarks about the piece. And I might set off with like one quick question, but then it's gonna quickly be turned over to everybody because you guys have read the work and read the piece. And so I wanna give you a chance to actually ask questions and engage the speaker. So that's going to be the bulk of the time. Okay, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Meredith. As Meredith said, I'm, I'm Ryan Liak. I'm also co-chair of the Professional Development Committee at USC's writing program this year. And this is our, yeah, our inaugural podcast for live theory. And uh, it kind of grows out of some reading groups that we had done in the past year uh, in rhetorical theory and composition studies. I should also give a shout out to, to Dan Dissinger and uh, Katie Robinson, who are running the Writing Remix podcast for our writing program, because this kind of inspired me to start thinking about ways that we can bring kind of the ground level theory that we do in a writing program to a larger audience for the faculty, but also beyond. So for, for me, I'm, I'm kind of glad that we're getting this, uh, getting this going, getting this online, and I hope that it shows again, kind of that theory for us is something that happens kind of at the root, right? On on the ground level that informs how we teach writing and rhetoric, which is too often seen as a kind of technical profession. And there are, and though there are technical aspects, of course, to writing and and reasoning and that sort of thing, it it greatly matters like how we approach the act of thinking and and writing. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of explore what happens at the root of our teaching and and theory. So I'll give it over to Abe to go ahead and give us his his talk. Thank you so much. Thank you, Meredith and Ryan. And thanks for those of you who are carving out the the Friday afternoon. Um, That's no small deal. So I appreciate it. And um, 
yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of just do a couple of, try to do a couple of things. Um, and I, I want to sort of lay out a larger framework a little bit for where this particular piece emerged. Uh, and then I want to draw out a sort of longer definition of transversality as kind of a key term and maybe potential methodological approach for writing or thinking about writing. Um, and then I want to sort of close with uh, reflections on how to kind of think and link these things up with kind of the current moment, what's happening, um, the kinds of work, organizing work that's being done and how that sort of has implications for what I think you are all calling live theory, right? Um, so my broader research sort of develops the concepts of transmolecular revolution and transversality, which I'm, I'm drawing out of both Guattari and Deleuze, but primarily Guattari in this particular instance. Um, and the term really emerges when he's doing work at the Laborde Psychiatric Clinic you know, outside of France with Jean Arlu. Um, so linking up transversality in particular as a kind of a concept with trans and black studies seems to be an attempt, I think, on my part to intervene in the debates about the complexity of embodied subjectivity and the kinds of politics of life that we often, I think I'm hearing a lot of conversations these days that link those under rubrics of intersectionality or assemblage theory or some sort of hybridized version of the two. Um, but in both cases, um, some attempts I think that are trying to be made to move past uh, these ideas of molar identity politics, right? So I don't wanna dispense with the sort of idea of intersectional analysis at all, right? But I do wanna sort of question what skills and dimensions that we can think through intersectionality um, beyond those sort of identities as kind of stagnant or multiplying, right? Um, so I think that I examine uh, those identities through these ideas that they are both they're institutional, they're affective, and they're even sort of ephemeral inequalities that come to lock them into place. Um, and those are the kinds of ways in which power gets to kind of flow through those spaces. And so I think more, more and more recently, my commitments to Black and trans studies are often sort of met with this deep paradox around identity where we have a kind of a societal tipping point where on one side, Black and trans visibility is kind of overwhelming, right? It's very present. Um, it's in sort of discursively being thrust around quite a bit. So much to bring about what I think are sort of material discourse shifts. I think there's really like changing molecular possibilities that are happening, but at the same time, we sort of precariously occupy these abject, negative, voided senses of the self, right? Um, and I actually think this is one of the shortcomings of the piece uh, is that it, it sort of doesn't engage the complications of voiding beyond perhaps the idea that we should be become unvoided or that there's a capacity to be avoided. Right? Um, so when we treat black trans categories of life, right, political mattering as already negative, then blackness and transness as they are lived can only be negative. And they sort of enter this anti-ontological state that kind of exists outside of this kind of molecular life that I'm trying to get at. So I think it's it's in part because of these conundrums and at the intersection of this, so to speak, um, that there's a lot at stake, right? Like that this isn't just a sort of a thought project, that I think there is a lot at stake um, in, in kind of taking an analytics of power, advancing an analytics of power that takes anti-racism or feminist critique beyond the sort of exclusive focus on racism or misogyny uh, and an analytics of sort of personal and societal transformation that takes trans theorizing, transgender specifically theorizing beyond its roots and the embodied experience of just transgender people, right? Uh, and to do that, I think the proliferation of, of, of and to do so would to, I think, be to attend to the proliferation of blackness rather than just simply thinking about these points as like points of exploitation. So part of my project is to elaborate a more expansive use of trans, right? Where and I kind of briefly touch on the, the asterisks denoting a kind of potential for linking a prefixal, conceptual and political kind of moving across to multiple suffixes rather than to just gender alone. I, I, take that primarily from Ava Hayward's kind of conceptualization of the asterisks. Um, and then 
sort of like thinking at the at the sites of the kind of the primary sites for this piece and the pieces that surround it, I think our, our culture is transversal um, and transversality. And then a more sort of open attachment to trans as it is as indexing gender or something like this. Um, and then around sort of and moving that around the kind of concepts of blackness and contemporary happenings and political projects like Black Lives Matter, um, which I think, you know, it, now maybe there would be more to do with the kind of thinking that I was trying to do at that moment uh, today, right? And we can maybe talk about that a little bit. So the two major threads that run through the piece for me, I think are the kind of the question of inanimacy, animacy slash inanimacy, and the applications of transversality as something that we can kind of work with, right? So to take the second point, First, um, I proposed, right, transversality as a kind of a conceptual tool or framework and kind of taking Guattari's definition as an ethical, political, social, aesthetic tool that's capable of kind of maximizing communication. So he, he tells us to imagine ourselves in a field of horses, right, and the blinders on the horses that are meant to, to sort of keep the horror of the, keep the horse from being startled, right, or actually what's producing the sort of my, like the, the one way of seeing um, that the minimizing of communication that's meant to somehow keep the horse from being startled is what's producing the, the horse's kind of own, you know, the, so this is an animal studies example from, from kind of part of parts of what he's talking about. So uh, and, and to maximize communication is not enough, right? Because then there has to be a sort of creating of linkages between those things while still sort of maintaining the specificity of like a minoritarian politic or a minoritarian life, right? Uh, which, as we know from reading Deleuze and Guattari, that minoritarian and majoritarian, molar and molecular, these are always tethered to one another, right? They're never they're never separate from one another. They're always kind of tethered. Um, and so both to sort of bring it around then, both black and trans, I think while often we're hearing these sort of discourses of being held to this politically empty possibility, right? Uh, always already made available for death in this kind of current social landscape exists in, in, in transversality is kind of the argument of the piece, right? And so I mean two things by that. I think the first thing is something that Riley Snorton picked up in Black on Both Sides. Um, and, and he argues right there that the relationship between Blackness and transness is transversal. Um, and that, that, that is about the sort of curved relationship of trans. Uh, so the aesthetic and ethical and political operations of trans exist prior to their articulation, is kind of his argument. Uh, and that's to say that the connections within those concepts occur in the formal kind of outside of various classifications or calcifications of identity or territorializations or nominalizations and so on and so forth. Uh, and then the second part I think is an extension of snoring or maybe like a slight disagreement, which is to say that the operative function of black and trans as transversal is actually about the sort of ungovernability of black and trans, right? There's an excess that's available to us that's a sort of spillage over. Um, so I think that the sort of implications for that, right, and like thinking of the sort of emergence of trans studies as an institutional field uh, of inquiry is kind of to understand the possibilities that are located in the body again, right, it's another discipline that's trying to make a, a claim about the ways that we embody theory matter, right, and this is kind of one of the sort of methodological questions of writing. Uh, and, and that the vantage point to understand this sort of corporeal, non-human, animal, collective, so on and so forth, uh, we can kind of say with relative certainty at this point that we don't quite know how to theorize trans to its sort of fullest extent or its fullest capacity, right? We often run up against walls and they're often probably related to the body or embodiment. Um, and then also, I don't know if we want to get into this, this might be too waiting, right? But that trans when it's prefixing other things might be doing something else than when it's prefixing gender, right? Uh, and so I think the, the sort of, you know, the point that I note about the animal being used to sort of rhetorically justify violence against black folks um, being used in trans studies as a potential sort of liberatory uh, way of thinking about 
human relationships or the history of humanism or the sort of crust of the enlightenment, right? All of those ideas uh, sort of push through the analytic of blackness when we're talking about transness in that way. It kind of gives it a really important uh, way to imagine an anterior future, right? That might take us towards sort of historical materiality while situating us in a sort of present and also creating a kind of a future of molecular capacity or possibility or, or any number of open communication routes that one might take. So in my personal life, I think just to sort of wrap it up and, and, and get to talk to you, I like this is really, I've been really engulfed by this kind of obsession about a sort of the, the philosophical problem of how ought we live our lives, right? How ought we live today? How should we live our lives, right? And, and with everything happening, right? And we can see, right, that the insurrections are, are, are multiple, right? And it seems like for me, even a few months ago, right, the kind of my, my interest and my, my pitch for revolution was met with a lot of sort of snickers and stares. And so that seems like almost a hyper real acceleration toward a new kind of charge multiplicity. Uh, it seems that there's something quite available, right, for the sort of taking and the making of new worlds and remaking the university, remaking how we think about writing, remaking how we think about uh, intimacy and relations to one another, how we think about labor, how we think about thinking, right? All of these things are sort of about things that have more or less been siloed in their communication, right? Individualizing sort of tactics or something like this, and that the actual maximizing of communication through transversality offers us some sort of uh, something. I don't know what that is, maybe. Um, maybe we can discuss. But I think as our bodies and their spaces and our imaginations are emerging within and outside of these institutions, and as we continue to be wounded by these institutions, right? Like thinking, how do we, how do we rethink curriculum that's wounding students, right? Or how do we rethink research? tracks that are wounding faculty or anybody else in our sort of milieu who is being uh, who isn't being sort of served by the way that the institution is set up uh, how do we sort of pr proceed right is the kind of the question and so i think it, it means to take political and crit critical pedagogy pretty seriously in a current moment if we're trying to think about how do we constitute some of these regimes of power that have really been materializing um, and undermining these kinds of scales of revolution that we've been trying to sort of impart. So I think there's there's a there's a charge, right? A really immediate, um, deeply political project, deeply philosophical project uh, that's sort of being laid at our feet, right? Which is is how do we incorporate um, these politics of revolution at, at every scale, right? Um, without being completely fatigued. And, and I think that part of the, the answer, right, is this sort of question about communication, what's available, kinds of information is available, kinds of authoritarian underpinnings, right, um, are, are being held down and what kinds of molecular possibilities exist between those as opposed to um, to crumble them, right, to, to move in between those things rather than just to it down. So I think that's that's kind of like an opening maybe thing that we can get going with. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to, to sort of chat with you. Thanks again for having me. Thank you so much. I'm just going to ask one quick question and I'll turn it over to everybody else. Um, I was thinking in terms of uh, applications for our own program. I was thematic coordinator for the identity and diversity thematic. I guess the history of the writing program was way back at some point. We as writing teachers wouldn't even have control over content. Um, there was a certain time where Doc Halperstam would give a lecture right at USC and there would be a, a writing class kind of attached to that main lecture. So the writing teacher would show up and watch the lecture and then would help students just make, we would help the students with the rhetorical moves, right? Around Jack Halberstam's content. And then there was a switch where we got more control over thematics. Um, but, but then the question became like, can we actually, there's a responsibility, right? To then kind of think deeply about the content, right? And theorize, especially when we have a, a content thematic around identity and diversity. So um, one of the things that really struck me in your article that I felt like was important was moving out of thinking of identity just in a molar 
kind of territorialized way, but in more molecular transversal modes. Um, and so I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more about how you teach that <laughs> mm -hmm. or how you kind of interact with students to kind of, because they're tending to be part of the culture, right? Where identity becomes very static, right? Captured. And then you, you do intersectional analysis where you add race and gender. <laughs> and that's like progressive, but still problematic because it tends to be in these molar silos. So um, I just felt like that would be super helpful for our program when we think about the teaching of identity and diversity in our thematics. So. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the first thing that sort of comes to mind is the, the sort of Munoz argument of like, how do we how do we have an, an undercommons and an overcommons and what is the relationship between those two things, right? And so I think, you know, what I'm so why I'm so sort of drawn to the idea of the molecular is that it's 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 a kind of capacity building argument. I recently read Andrew Colt's Dark Deleuze and he sort of paints Deleuze as a pessimist, right? And this idea that we've romanticized these these kinds of concepts of flight or becoming and, and kind of make them into these uh, amorphous, unrealistic things. And, and I, I, I sort of, you know, I, I had a hard time with that argument, but I, I didn't dislike it. And I would say that I was compelled by the idea that I often probably too romanticize these kinds of molecular spaces or molecular identity as a a way of escaping the traps of a kind of molar identitarian politics. Um, but I do think, right, in the sense that we are always already talking about things that are, are together, right? Like to think of the molar and the molecular as pulling on each other as, as opposed to distinct kinds of embodiments that we all embody molar and molecular scales of self, right? And that I think that there's something really interesting about the sort of points of psychoanalysis in this argument, right? Which are so much, I think part of what we could take from, you know, Deleuze and Guattari's reworking of psychoanalysis is to think about the ways in which the molecular self is often the repressed self, the hidden self, the private self, and the self that negotiates life and pleasure in the dark, right? As opposed to the self who presents, you know, to the world or meets the world and then can be acted on the world. And so I think when we experience, like I experienced a kind of a visceral racism the other day, right? And I felt it on my sort of molar presence. My body felt very hit, right? But it was the sort of molecular components that felt worse, right? Because it's that part of yourself that constantly is trying to escape and those negotiations of scale that are often imperceptible, right, are really hard to discuss without either sort of pathologizing or romanticizing. And I think what they do so well is to link up the molar and the molecular with other kinds of terms to help us piece apart what it means to actually shift life, right? And so I think when we're talking about like, what does it look like to teach formal, formal striated, uh, organized, you know, I understand comes and then you do this and you do it the same way every time, right? There's a sort of more organization to that, that for my own teaching, you know, I teach at a different, I teach a very different body of students than you all teach. And for us, it's important to let them understand that they can master those things and that that's not the end, right? Like that, that that's not the, it's not the beginning or the end, it's just another thing as opposed to charging it with this kind of molar presence that allows it to be the authoritarian kind of thing that writing probably can be, right? I was raised by the Los Angeles Unified School District, so I'm not the best writer. Um, I've had to learn those sort of technical aspects, but I think part of what I, I, I think is happening in the kind of move toward embodied thought, especially in fields like gender studies, is an acknowledgement that our lives have capacities, right? And that we don't need to necessarily author our own stories in order to use our frameworks to produce knowledge, right? Like that it doesn't have to be like, let me tell you this sad story about myself, but it has to be about the framework being genuine to the sort of molecular experience of the subject, right? Otherwise we end up with just like false, empty, flat ontological 
thing, right? It's like if you're just reproducing the copy of the copy of the copy, it's not that it's not that interesting. But I, I, I think you know what what always excites me about student writing is when they take a risk that that pays off, right? <laughs> like that not all risks pay off, but that writing is about experimentation and writing and thinking about writing is about experimentation and life is about experimentation. And if we if we don't pressure ourselves to experiment, we often sort of solidify, codify, and then there's one right way to do something. Yeah. Does that make sense? I don't know if that was a good I'll just say, you gave me a whole new way to think about personal writing. Okay, cool. Because I think there's a lot of turn in my department, which is fine, right, to do kind of more personal writing, but, but could you do that without a static subject as the author, right, and yeah. still write about experiences, right, that you've had even on a kind of molecular, unconscious, transversal level, but not have to position that in my identity as a bump, 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 you know, yeah. or you could do that, but then move between it in terms of the relationality, but that's yeah. super interesting, yeah. Okay, I'm going to turn it over to everybody else. Anybody want to jump in here? Well, I was going to say, because I was thinking, I'm teaching a lot of um, Carl Jung this semester and doing like analytical psychology and having them um, think about these kind of layers of, of, you know, conscious and unconscious and that sort of thing. And, and I, I, even having them kind of do an optional kind of dream analysis, right, where they, where they kind of try to get some of that content, um, which I do myself. And it's very interesting um, to, to make those connections between, I guess, what, I mean, for Jung is kind of like the, the mask or, or the, perceived self or the ego or whatever and and your um kind of inner personality which would be more of the molecular type level and uh you can tell me if you think this is too simplistic because because uh, you know i try to get my students to think about this um in a, in a more again like ground level theoretical mode but which has a lot of impact um for the, this conception of identity uh and diversity and so i kind of I, I make them step into a trap that I set and I, and I for, for one of my writing projects, I tell them to like, uh, you know, investigate kind of narrate and investigate and analyze a community um, of theirs that's shaped um, an attitude, which uh, Jung defines as like a preparedness to act in a definite way. And, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of them come back and say, well, I've been trying to think about a community and I realized that whatever I label as this community is, is kind of entangled with all these other communities. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's, and they kind of be like, how do I, what does a community mean? You know, and, and like what, I mean, and then, and then they get into the attitude and they find that a particular way of acting is entangled with all kinds of other, you know, nodes of acting. And, and it, it, it immediately produces kind of the, um, conception for them personally that one sense of you know where we come from and, and what communities we come from and what what our identities are are kind of uh, so yeah tangled up um, in in these scales of, of matter right across the human and non-human um, that it's I guess a kind of performative way of getting the students to to, to get into that realization for themselves without me first teaching them, let's say, let me tell you why your identity is entangled with such and such. Um, they kind of have to stumble it, you know, into it for themselves. And I mean, does that sound like uh, something that would be productive kind of on, on your level with, with hierarchies of matter and animacies and that sort of, uh, those, those sorts of things? Yeah, I love that. I'd wonder, I'd wonder if you would share like kind of the the results of that experiment, you know. But I I think that you know in the for me I take a lot of my you know community is such a complicated term, right? It really is, and I think that when we are yeah, I think when we're sort of trying to sever those things out, right, when we're made to kind of phenomenologically turn ourselves to the world, and we have to look outward in this way, we tend to realize things are much more 
simple and complicated, right, than we give them credit for, or I think that there's a really intense imperative in our current time, I don't know if this is always true, but for now, I observe a lot of generalizations about the way things are, right, and I hear a lot of really strong statements about the way things are, um, and I think, you know, in that first chapter of A Thousand Plateaus, when Deleuze and Guattari are talking about you know, there's no, there's no perfect listener speaker, right? There's no, they talk about the ways that we collectively enunciate. We all are collectively enunciating all of the time, right? The community, you know, it, I think they actually, I think it's a linguistic thing they're doing there, right? They say like, there's no, there's no perfect like speaker listener the same way there's no like cohesive linguistic community community or something like this, right? So to imagine the task of going out to articulate a community only to realize all of these are just articulations in a larger assemblage, right? That these are just points upon something that's much more networked and much more rhizomatic and much more interstitial than we give it credit for. And I think, you know, the only part maybe that I would kind of return to and what you're saying, yes, is the short answer. And then the, the sort of one part is like you said something about, um, you know, the, the internal, you know, like the, the ego is the kind of the more maybe and then the internal is kind of the molecular. I would say I, I see a lot of ways in which molecular is something that is lived in the sort of formal body right and at the like at the level of the body and i think of like a molecular community in a way i don't know maybe back in the day we started calling queer folks we started calling each other family right as an articulation of self but also as an articulation of a connection to a larger network of people that we didn't know and also a sort of generational nod to those who came before, those who raised us, and a rejection of our own families or families that didn't serve us, or even maybe if our families did serve us, a severing of the meaning of the family, right? Like that those kinds of things are about a molecular community forming itself uh, on behalf of itself, and that that's, that's just like a sense of how to assemble and share information, right? And in all sort of like histories of minoritized struggles, labor struggles, feminist struggles, critical race, thinking has allowed us to understand how we had to negotiate uh, molecularly, right? Like we can think of like the green book or something, you know, like something, something, something where people are sharing information is always already about a molecular community forming. And so I think it's cool to think of your students kind of going out to meet what they think is a molar institution, right? They're gonna get a sort of homogenous uh, understanding only to realize that there is no such thing, right? That that's a false start that they're, they're coming from. Uh, and that when they, you know, when we say things like community organizing is a term, right? What are we saying? Uh, we're saying, how do we get our family together, right? How do we make life happen for our, our people, our family? Um, that's not at all one-dimensional right but it's super complex and so i i like it i do when when you send them out and when they come back are they disappointed by this or are they thrilled is this an exciting thing they're they're i would say they're very troubled by mm -hmm. it because it's not a neat they, they were looking kind of like you were alluding to they're, they're looking for a neat narrative of, of who they are right mm. and um I usually end up kind of giving the example from judith butler and uh give her book uh, giving an account of oneself like anytime you try and give an account of yourself, the, 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 the account always breaks down because um, you can't, you know, just like my students, they can't find that neat kind of story. And so they, they're very troubled by it, um, but they end up focusing on some part of that molecular level that does reveal something um, about their, you know, practices and habits and ideologies that's productive even though, even, even, well, especially because it's confusing. Uh, and so the, the assignment I think is very productive and I, ever since I kind of assigned it, I haven't stopped <laughs> using it in, in some way or another. And I usually tie that to uh, other types of assignments, kind of like cultural or material artifacts, which look at the way um, real material things, you know, in their house or whatever are a part of some you know, conceived identity. 
uh, and a part of that kind of messy narrative. And I think that speaks, yeah, again, to this kind of distinction between molar and molecular. So yeah, it's, it's been productive. So, feel, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Yeah, how I love it. I love it. Yeah. I think that there's a, I really enjoy assignments uh, that, that take something very precise, right. Um, that, that allows somebody to sit with something very precise and kind of create networks that, that help to illuminate like how much goes into constitution right like that how much goes into the making of the world is like really i mean who needs drugs right like this is like really mind-blowing stuff and you have like you know i had my students this past semester make podcasts based on the through line podcast uh the npr does and i gave them kind of like you know objects like very simple things and, that, and they have to sort of document how they came to like hold meaning or signify something to us today, right? And watching them sort of go through this maze, you know, it's like one couldn't possibly predicted how many turns that they could possibly make. And that's kind of what I mean by experimentation. It doesn't have to be particularly complicated, but it should be sensorial, right? Like there should be a sensation attached to it. And I think when students go out to meet the world in the way that that assignment requires of them, they have to become undone a little bit, right? Like you have to, you have to realize, and this is so much about, you know, when I'm saying like, how are we gonna think about the university, the future of the university in such a time as we're in, right? Where there's so many people who it's not working for, very obviously, right? Uh, that, you know, and there's some people that it seems to be working for, but I do think there's a lot of folks who are, are suffering in the current model of the university and that there needs to be some sort of experimentation with that model, right? Because education is so vital and thinking is so vital and theory is so vital and it's life-saving stuff, right? But how do you meet the world uh, through that theory? How do you live that theory when these institutions are organized in the way that they are, right? And it might be through some of those sort of collective smaller things that we can do, assignments that we can rethink. Uh, how can you rethink writing through an embodied act in the world? That's a really complicated thing to be able to give to somebody, right? Like that's a really nuanced and rich way to approach one's uh, project of thinking, project of research. Yeah. I might I might borrow some elements of that assignment if you'll allow me. <laughs> Should we read the question you think? Because Christina has a question she put Yeah, go for it. That sounds good. Sure. Um, so Christina writes in the chat, um, Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry, I'm thinking of, yeah, sorry. I have, a, I know a lot of Christine's, Christina's, yeah, Chris's everything. Uh, sorry, so Chris says you posed at the beginning of your talk this contradiction between black and trans visibility as present um, and changing possibilities of intelligibility that would bring with them democratic inclusion rights, etc. At the same time, blackness and transness continue to occupy the position of the abject in our culture. For students who want to celebrate the former, and I've so many students who do, how do you introduce the more slippery ways that blackness and transness uh, matter? And why do you think that's important or not? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Thank you, Chris. Um, so I, maybe I'll, I, if you'll indulge me for a second, I'll maybe answer it in kind of an around, around way, uh, way. But one of, the, one of the sort of ways that I approach that specific thing and, and you're right, right? So many students do uh, want want that, right? And progress narratives are really like meaningful, right? And, and again, like, you know, our present selves might need progress narratives, you know, and our future selves may not need progress narratives. But so I, I try not to dull their hope, right? I don't approach them from the, the side of idea that, you know, it, it's nothing's changed, right? Because it is different, you know? And so I think that's often what we, we talk about is that the idea of sort of difference and repetition. And there's another thing that I say in the article that I would absolutely pick out uh, if I had the chance. And that is that I make some sort of claim that history is repeating itself. And this is a very sloppy claim because we are, what we're actually talking about is a sort of repetition that leads to slight articulations of difference, right? And so I think that when students are sort of coming to a room with the question, well, but I see how it was so much worse, right? 
I try to sort of inflect uh, the kind of the idea of air in a balloon, right? And that if we look at the history of the land that we occupy, that, that the kinds of, you know, and this, and this is, I think, where a sort of a focus on a kind of Marxist analysis is super useful, that we're looking at a crisis that can't actually overcome itself. And we've now sort of entered this moment of capitalism, crisis capitalism, as opposed to a crisis of, or a crisis of capitalism, right? We're in kind of a crisis capitalism moment. And I think that the progress narrative um, allows for a certain kind of fueling for students, right? It allows them to sort of fuel themselves forward, to see themselves as a particular part of the lineage instead of the assemblage that they are actually in, right? It's harder to see all angles. So I think that, you know, one of the ways that I sort of have done this in the past is to tell them this, this the past like couple of years, I suppose, to tell them the story of Kimberly Crenshaw and Felix Guattari in 1989, who are both writing about Donald Trump and his sort of pillaging of poor communities and his pillaging of geographic space. Uh, Guattari calls him uh, a form of algae that redevelops and takes over and drives out the poor in order to serve the rich. And Crenshaw talks about him as a sort of neo-slave master who builds himself literally above the people below and sort of protects with this kind of gold onyx veneer when it's all really just a crisis, right? And so this is 1989 where they're both writing about this Guattari and Free Ecologies and and Crenshaw and mapping the margins, right? And she's talking about the Central Park Five and he's talking about Atlantic City. So they're both talking about this kind of, you know, situated geography, right? Both of them are sort of recognizing the, the inflammation of this character and both really mourn and say, if you don't do something about it, he's going to take over, right? Guattari calling him algae is to make an argument that he's taking over. And so this relationship, right, that we have to the sort of current moment and the idea that we've regressed, right, ignores the very, very important ways that these things are indexed and subtended and crafted, right? That statecraft has to have its has to have its uh, it has to have its way. But I think more than it has to have its way, right? These things are articulated very clearly for us as as air in a balloon, right? They're being squeezed into different parts. Um, something in the article, right, is this idea that, you know, a nation built off of slavery needs needs the afterlife of slavery in order to kind of shore up its meanings and its foundations. And, and you know, and all of Foucault were living in a time where a lot of the very, very, very severe violence we're experiencing is hidden, right? And so I think as students start to sort of uncover the ways in which progress narratives actually block them from attending to some of the sort of more political presence that they that they actually desire, right? They actually want to sort of be present in that, that crisis and understand it, that progress narratives hold them back from doing that because it doesn't allow them to articulate these things beyond it gets better, right? Like that's the only, the problem with the progress narrative is that it can only be the progress narrative. It doesn't allow for other versions of the story. Um, and so I think, you know, when I say like that identities are slippery, but they matter, it's like, you know, I can tell you transphobia is real because I'm a trans person and I experience it and I know that it's real, but can I tell you what it is? Not exactly, right? Like, are you mad because I'm trans? Are you mad because I'm this kind of trans person? Are you mad because I'm not that kind of trans person? I don't really know. And I don't know if the target is gender transgression most of my gender presentations are quite normative, right? So I don't, I don't know what the target is, but I can tell you that it's true. So that's kind of what I mean by slippery, right? These things come to matter, right? We can enact something like gender as a very liberatory politic, but it's also a very restrictive politic. And so those contradictions, those paradoxes that we have to live with, I think uh, can be articulated and specified instead of ignored or glossed over. That, that gets us to a much more enhanced kind of understanding of, of political life, of mattering, of how we matter and how we kind of connect to others in the molecular community. Does that make sense? Does that sort of get to that? It was Chris's question, but I'm not sure if she's able to verbally. 
Yes, we said that's really helpful in the chat. Just to clarify the part you said you would rewrite, is that on page 195? <laughs> yeah. Just to dig in. There was a moment there where you said, um, was it the three modes of power, the police, capitalism, the police and power, always tethered to one another, always with the same but all everyday goals. That part felt like a little, just in terms of like, that history then repeats itself. Yeah, it's kind mm -hmm. of the same, right? There's this kind of repetition, but so much of Foucault, right, is like tracing the ways in which those three things shape shift, right, and transform and like attach on to other modes of power in ways that are very different, right? Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually think, you know, another way to just sort of make it plain, right, is to say progress narratives don't really serve us because they rely on the idea that history is a set of kind of ordained things that come one after another and they, they, they you know, the sun will rise and the sun will set, right? This idea, this idea that we have some sort of predictive measure for knowing where things go, it's, it's a very bad, it's a very bad uh, model, but it's a seductive model. You know, it's a seductive model because there, it is really, you know, it is really nice to think about things getting better, you know, but I think it's important that we just think things get different, right? And that there's a lot of joy and pleasure to be had, um, but that in focusing on how bad things used to be, we're always sort of tied to the notion that what we are is bad, right? Or at least for me, right? This is like, I constantly rearticulate myself as the object of violence. Uh, that's a that's a psychically damaging place to go. But I have to acknowledge that I'm the subject of violence, and those are really those are really tense things. And I think progress narratives help us from help us from seeing ourselves as the site of violence, right? Because nobody wants to be avoided, right? Yeah. Just Small quick thing, then I'll open it back up. I just finished reading Sadia Hartman Scenes of Subjection with my students this week. And I felt like one of the things that blew their mind with that, right, is not just that after emancipation, new forms of subjugation were in place, right? But it came through the very ideal of progress, of the ideal of humanity by being bestowed on the formerly enslaved. You now are a subject of rights and responsibility that then opened, right? subjects to disciplining moralization and all of those apparatuses of control. And that's just such a hard argument <laughs> to even come, grapple with today because I feel like we respond to the dehumanization of racism with a call for humanizing and that has its own legacies of opening people to control and, and discipline. But it's, it's appealing and seductive, as you said, yeah, to kind of not want to think about that. Um, Absolutely. And shout out to Sadia Hartman for giving us that that amazing way to think about it because I think her book really was one of the first places where I, I sort of understood some of those complexities so yeah absolutely it's almost like to use a panopticon kind of you know it's almost like moving from one panopticon to another in a sense it's like you're okay maybe you're out of the prison but now we're going to bestow upon you the subjecthood to be regulated you know in different ways um, by society and by the police and by the extra uh, apparatuses beyond maybe maybe the worst apparatus, but but still which fun which functions uh, in in the same way, right? Much of the time, so um, you know it's like you're allowed to 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 be a subject. And I'm thinking of you know Althusser's definition of of free will, well, you, you're basically allowed to freely subject yourself to, to subjection. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not, uh, yeah, it's, it's not as easy, right, it, it, to, to think that humanization is the solution both for that reason and of course the reason you provide that if you, uh, if, if humanization becomes a solution, then you're, you're kind of acquiescing to these animacy hierarchies that privilege a human um, okay, so you have to be a human to be valuable. Uh, and then even if it's the case that we make all humans, you know, of, of all backgrounds and, and races and so forth um, matter, in a humanistic sense, you, you know, you still, what about everything else that, that gets labeled as inanimate um, and which circles back to affect the human, right? In, in, all, in all sorts of ways. So it's, it's, it's kind of a double-edged um, 
sort in, in many ways. But I, I also want to open it up to, yeah, questions to um, anyone else. So we're not dominating. We're we're very excited about this about this podcast and to talk about these things, but we don't want to dominate uh, too much. So um, if we have a few minutes left, and we thought we'd see if anybody else has has any questions or comments. Hi. Uh, I'm Jesse. First, thank you so, so much for being here and for such insightful conversation. It's, it's really, really wonderful. Um, I had a more, a, I hate to qualify, but I guess a smaller question. Um, your use of the term animacies. So um, I'm, I, I don't use the word identity, but uh, I'm a Black woman and I'm proud of that. And I also, un know and feel at a molecular level as well the history of the use of comparison of black people and animals um and i you go into that and so i'm not questioning that but it's more i'm curious about the either reactions you had to the use of the term or any like feelings around that even for yourself as you were using that term and unpacking it um considering all of the complexities around that term and the history and the people that you are considering? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And, and I think um, something I really probably, if there's one thing I've worked most on in this line of scholarship, right? Uh, sorry. Um, in this line of scholarship, it is this question, right? And I think to sort of put it plainly, I've arrived at, at kind of what I feel like is my present answer. And I'll, I'll give, so I'll give you that one more than I'll talk to the, the piece. But I think, you know, there's one place where I try to sort of maybe a little bit clumsily talk about, you know, I really was observing and we can kind of, maybe I start the conversation somewhere and like black psychoanalysis and then thinking about black feminist theory and you know Patricia Collins and, and those sort of early kind of writings on the links between using the animal to with, withdraw humanism right from or withdraw the human out of the black subject right and that we've experienced this sort of dehumanization through the animal so poignantly and so clearly that the emergence of the use of the animal in trade studies is really difficult to see as anything but white, right? As anything but sort of white, the whiteness of the field sort of emerging through this question of the animal. And I think that what we were kind of experiencing was a side-by-side -side of like an attempt to sort of return to some of those really useful ways of talking about animality and blackness and the ways that animality has been used to leverage against and constantly leverage against while simultaneously sort of thinking of the animal as a extracted labor piece of capital that in particularly in the United States is, is so clearly sort of oriented toward the mentality of what we saw during slavery, right? Like the relationship between racial capital and the animal is so obviously sort of linked in the last sort of hundreds of years of our history, right? And I think when we see it in trans studies, what we're seeing is a sort of attempt or a gesture similar to what Susan Stryker does with the monster, uh, where it's like an attachment to a becoming of other, or other becoming, right? And that, you know, in Deleuze and Guattari, becoming animals engendered an enormous amount of critique, right? Because it is about this sort of way of rethinking it. So the short answer is, I actually don't think that the animal is a liberatory site for Black studies. I don't think it's useful for Black studies in that way. Um, animacy as a term I take as more useful, right? The animal as a sort of a liberatory possibility for Blackness doesn't work for me. I would, I would refute that. Um, and because I think of Blackness and transness as transversal, I'm not sure how helpful it is for trans studies either. But I do think the idea of animacy, right, which is to say not the animal, but the sort of rhetorical use of language to slide people up and down toward and away alive and dead, right? And this is kind of Chen's argument, but it's also been, I think, circulating and working in ways that are that have been updated since Chen's book. Um, but the idea of sliding people on scales of humanness toward and away from life, right? I think is a really powerful way to understand how language gets used to leverage 
the animal without ever invoking the animal, right? So we never actually have to use that term, the animal, or make it akin to an animal because we can easily slide somebody toward or away from life with the kinds of language choices around it. And I think if we return to the insights from Lingus as bestiality, it's a really awesome way to sort of disrupt that gesture and disrupt that motion um, and to move it into more of a sort of a network or an assemblage away from the line of alive and dead, the animacy is so good at shuttling back and forth. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the, the short answer is I don't, I don't know that it's, it's that useful. Um, and the long answer is that I think if we think about animacy as something that's not actually attached to the animal, but rather sort of networked in a larger kind of use of language to dehumanize, then we can target it better instead of saying like you're using the animal, we can say you're using the kinds of language that is making an attempt to withdraw my humanness and I'm not gonna participate in that, right? Like that's like that's like a, a way to rehash the animal, to re reorganize it maybe is a good term so that we can kind of think about um, what's actually happening in this scene. You're not making me into a monkey this time, although you have, but the language that you're using around is, is gesturing toward that, right? Is gesturing toward this idea or animal rights discourses as ones that necessarily engage with the understanding that not all humans are, are, are made available to that kind of treatment or even the sort of domestication of animals in the sort of 21st century as this like this this progressive beacon of, of family, right? Like, <laughs> like this is completely like diluted relationship to the animal that ultimately uh, served to give us an entire lexicon for how to withdraw people with humanness, especially black folks, um, at times other folks, but predominantly black folks and predominantly black women, quite frankly, right? Because of the sort of animality of the black man the sort of history of the Mandingo figure is a much different charted history. Um, that's the history of strength, the history of like power, even if it's emasculated and sort of castrated to psychoanalysis, right? Whereas the Black woman has constantly not only been the animal, but also the sort of site of exploitation and extraction for more life, right? So it's it's like a it's a it's just constant feedback loop, which gives us no real hope for using the animal in Black studies. But I think it's important that we keep our eye on what trans studies is doing with it, right? Because transness and blackness to me are so interwoven at unlikely sites. So despite not being the same, they're interwoven at unlikely sites. And if we allow the proliferation of animacy in one place, it, it'll creep into the other place. So that's kind of my interest in holding them together and, and pointing to them. Um, but in terms of should you pick up that theory and move it somewhere else, that it might not be as useful in that, in that sense. Does that, does that answer your question? Oh yeah, that was a great answer. It was really helpful. Thank you very much. No, thank you for the question. Thank you for chatting. So I think we're almost out of time. Just so you guys still have, you know, there it is Friday. <laughs> I don't want to let um, Abe go until I had a chance to press him just, just once on, on his use of the term rhetoric. Yes, go for it. I know that. <laughs> uh oh. This is why we invited you. I just, I just wanted to crucify you on the podcast and then have that broadcast. <laughs> I'll have at it. I'm here. <laughs> it's three. But, I'm just <laughs> I mean, um, so you use, and this is, this is all Boris Nunley's fault who we're having on next time. He, he's kind of the one who got me um, kind of, you know, thinking about the way that people use the term rhetoric, right? And you, uh, you, several times you use the term um, like rhetorically justify uh, or, or something or, or in, in, a, in like a derogatory type context, right? Um, and in, in, your, in your answer, you explained to, to Jesse how people are making certain moves with language, right? To um, withdraw their humanity. And I, I would, what I would ask is, isn't it also the case for you that you are making moves as well, right? Which are also rhetorical, but which move in a more responsible, um, ethical kind of domain. Uh, and that's to say that, isn't it the case that, that we, we are, you know, all language is figural, right? As, as Nietzsche said, and we're, we're always in this rhetorical domain. So it's not really a question of, 
um, of minimizing rhetoric as more expanding our responsible use uh, of rhetoric and then the nature of rhetoric. So for me, I, I, I'm still stuck over the question of whether rhetoric is like science, whether it's um, a, a kind of you know, ethically neutral tool. Uh, it's, I don't think it's a tool, that's for sure, but whether rhetoric can be considered in, to some extent um, a, a kind of a tool that's, that's neutral and so we use it one way or the other or whether we shouldn't try to, to connect rhetoric more with responsible response which is how a lot of contemporary rhetoricians define it um, in a sense that since the, the ancient uh, rhetoricians kind of established the field and established the first academies and universities and that sort of thing, um, they were quite interested in entertaining opposing arguments um, to, to the fullest possible extent and sitting with discomfort and uncertainty uh, to you, you could say, and it, this, this is a little too platonic, um, but, but get at the truth, um, not the eternal truth, but the contingent historical, uh, real present conditions of existence. So what is true for us now at this moment, which we get at through the widest possible use of rhetoric in all kinds of, all kinds of directions. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of, I guess, you know, again, kind of pushing on your use of that term rhetoric to say, is, isn't it kind of also the case, right, that you are engaging in these rhetorical moves as well, but they're, but they're, but they're different, they're more responsible, which is uh, precisely the kind of turn in rhetoric that many of us are trying to engage in what we call listening rhetoric or rhetorical listening, um, a more responsible use of language of thinking about matter and, and a lot of these very same issues. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's totally reasonable uh, as a, a sort of challenge. I, I might only shy away from maybe making a statement that I'm doing anything ethical. I don't want to be judged on, you know, my version of ethics, but I, I, I do think, yeah. And, and maybe I like, the, the sort of attention to the affect of how I was using it because I wouldn't say that I think of rhetoric or rhetorical gestures as inherently negative by any means or inherently uh, I don't I didn't touch the catch the word you wrote but or the word you said but I don't I don't necessarily think of them as in, inherently harmful inherently negative and just sort of the rhetorical moves or the, the way I was using it and I am not uh, uh, the person to, to sort of work my way into the literature of your field so i will avoid that at all costs but um i would say that you know i'm thinking of it more in terms of like i, I meredith can maybe help me out as a as such a good reader concept but i'm i'm thinking of it in the way that Deleuze and Guattari talk about secret languages right and they they sort of make this argument that the secret language, uh, it, it's not some sort of like code that needs some sort of cipher, right? It's not some sort of like thing to be uncovered. It's just this constantly forming and reforming system and subsystem. And it has the sort of, it takes the language system, the public language system, and accounts for all of these variables and states of variation and shifts and changes. And it's why I'm very interested in things like keywords, right? The kind of like, give us, you know, give us a point that then we can see how it unfolds in every direction. And so I actually think the same justifications that are used to withdraw humanness from blackness is, are the same kinds of rhetorical uses to actually promote a liberatory politics of animals and trans studies. So I think it's actually the same language being used, which, which therein lies the problem, right? If, the, if trans studies uses the animal in ways, and this isn't, this is a generalization. This is not true of everything that's happening, right? Plenty of really good work around these kinds of complicated questions and, and making, and, and attending to blackness. Because when we're talking about the animal, we ought always be attending to blackness. We ought to be attending to blackness anyhow. But I think when we're specifically uh, critical theory around the animal, when it does not attend to blackness, is inherently 
sort of anti-blasphemy, right? So I, I think, you know, it's, that's kind of what I was, was sort of getting at was that they're actually, it's the same language, right? We're actually seeing, and, and so it's, it's actually pretty subtle. It's not, you know, it's not sort of withdrawing the human from the, 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 the sentient black subject, right? It's, it's actually the same kind of language that fortifies the sort of position on the anarchy hierarchy, right? Of like here and here. So I, I totally would cave to that criticism. I take it. Um, and I also will, will think about uh, from here my use of rhetorical and rhetoric as terms that I operationalize. So thank you for that. Uh, and I would say maybe just as a kind of a closing point on, on that, um, that, that the, the ultimate sort of, you know, move toward transversality for me is is so much about the prefix of trans inciting movement right that transversality is at its its sort of the, the ontological setting of it is always moving it's always going you know it's always experimenting and that we run into problems of of language or concepts when we let them stay still for too long, right? When they just, we take them as, as one or the other and we don't revisit, we don't wet the clay, so to speak. Um, and so I think, you know, part of what the, the concept is trying to accomplish is, is being wrong about something then so that you can be right about it now or something like this, you know, that it's constantly has to be reinvented. So I appreciate um, that, that thought all of your thoughts and thank you so much for this. This is a real pleasure. Equally, very much a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you for a very gracious, uh, res responsible response to that. <laughs> to that. <laughs> this is a responsible question. So. <laughs> awesome.